Okay, if you were to never take communion again in your life, what would you be missing? I want you to think about that for a second. If you were to never have the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper ever again in your life, what would you lose? As we get started this morning, this is the question I want you to consider. And the reason is that it forces us to deal with the substance of communion. What is it that we even have in the Lord's Supper? And therefore, what would we lose if we lost this practice in the church or in our own lives? Now, my guess is that for most of you, communion is something that you have participated in literally hundreds, if not thousands of times in your life. But that question, if you were to never take communion again, what would you be missing? I would guess for most of you, it's a somewhat difficult question to answer. And especially if I qualified it with this, tell me what the Bible says you would be missing. Although it's one of the most common practices of the church, I do think it is one of the least understood practices of the church. And not only that, but for the last 2,000 years, ironically enough, something that we often refer to as communion has been one of the more divisive practices in the church. And not necessarily in individual churches, although that can be the case, but really across Christendom, you'll notice that communion or the Lord's Supper, it is a dividing issue along the lines of denominations. And this morning, what I'm hoping to do is to take about 30 minutes here and to heal all of the wounds of the past 2,000 years of denominational divides and bring crystal clarity to all of the questions that you could ever ask about communion. No problem. Just kidding. Just kidding. Here's what I really want to do. Just like with baptism, there are a few key crucial questions I want us to tackle together as a church. We're going to answer three key questions this morning around communion. And in doing that, my hope is not to solve uh, every single debate or difficult question that you might have in your mind. In fact, I would invite, if there are specific questions that you have about the Lord's Supper, my hunch is that they will be more stirred up than answered this morning. And so my invitation to you is to a cup of coffee and a conversation. Okay? If you have difficult questions around communion... Uh, ask those questions. Find one of our pastors, Pastor Mike, Pastor Steve, Pastor Cole, or myself, and sit down for a cup of coffee and ask those questions. But what we're going to do today is try to provide a framework for understanding communion through three crucial questions, which are, what is communion? Who should participate in communion? And how should a believer participate in communion? What is communion? Who should participate and how should a believer participate in communion? And again, my goal is not to teach a class. It is to change the way that we experience communion together as a church. Okay, so question number one, what is communion? What is it that we're talking about? And the very first thing I want to do is place communion in its historical, biblical Context, Because communion, it's not just like this weird add-on practice that got thrown into the church out of left field, like out of nowhere. Hey, here's this thing that you're now going to start doing. Instead, 
it's been given to the church with a really important historical and biblical context. Okay? And that helps us, knowing the biblical context will help us to understand its, its place and its purpose in our lives as believers and in the church. Now, last week we talked about baptism. Okay? You've got to mentally track with me through this. We answered the question, what is baptism, by saying this. Baptism, it is the sign of the new covenant externally uniting us by faith into the redeemed people of God. Do you know what we are doing in that definition of baptism? We are placing baptism, we're anchoring baptism in its historical, biblical context. By saying it's the sign of the new covenant, we are reminding ourselves that there was an old covenant and a sign of that old covenant, okay? Which is circumcision, as the sign of the old covenant. We're tying those things together because in doing that, it, it helps us to understand what we have in baptism. It shares some of the pattern and some of the purpose of that sign of the old covenant with some very important and clear distinctions. Okay? Communion in the same way it has a historical and biblical context, and that historical biblical context is the Passover. So if you want to understand baptism, one helpful thing to do is to peek back at circumcision and understand the relationship between those two things. If you want to understand communion, one helpful thing to do is to peek back at the Passover and understand the relationship between those two things. Now, the Passover... Uh, I'm just going to give you a high-level understanding of the Passover this morning, but it is a huge deal. Okay, it, it is a huge deal. It was a several-day occasion, a whole week of different festivities, and it was highlighted by a Passover meal. And you could say the Passover, it was the most significant ceremony of the Old Covenant. Passover was the most significant ceremony of the Old Covenant. And it was all designed to point the nation of Israel back to like the most significant, important, salvific moment in their history. And it grounded them in God's work of grace in that moment. And it continually nourished them and united them around that singular salvific moment of the Lord. And that one moment, that singular salvific moment of God's grace, the defining moment that Passover was rooted in, it took place on the night that the Israelites were rescued out of slavery in Egypt. Okay? And the way that they were rescued is that God, He sent all of these plagues to Egypt in order to eventually force them to release His people. And the last plague that God sent to Egypt, which finally broke the back of Pharaoh and caused him to set free the Israelites, it was that the angel of the Lord was going to come and bring death to all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Okay? And before that happened, the Lord came and he instructed the Israelites, hey, if you don't want to be caught up in this plague as well, if you don't want to be caught under the same judgment and have all of your firstborn killed as well, here's what you need to do. Take a lamb, okay? Take a spotless lamb, slaughter it. Take the blood of the lamb, put it on the doorpost 
of your house. And when the angel of the Lord comes to bring the judgment of God, he will see the blood of the lamb and he will pass over your home, not coming in to execute God's judgment. Okay? And after that incredible work of God's grace to rescue the Israelites and to spare them from God's judgment through the blood of the lamb, what God does is he institutes a ceremony to constantly draw them back to that moment of his grace. It's called the Passover. And year after year, they would celebrate this memorial meal of the Passover to point back to, to be grounded in, to be nourished by God through and united as his people by the Passover. The Passover was the ceremony of the Old Covenant. Okay, now what is communion? One helpful way to understand it is that communion, it is the ceremony of the New Covenant. It is the ceremony of the New Covenant. And we could say this. So last week, remember we talked baptism. It's the sign of the New Covenant externally uniting us into the redeemed people of God. Communion, it is the ceremony of the new covenant continually uniting us as the people of God. And we see the relationship between communion and Passover from the very outset of of its establishment in Luke 22. So Luke 22, you have Jesus. He is sharing the Passover meal with his disciples. It is the last meal that he shares with them all together before his arrest and eventual crucifixion. This is what Jesus says and does in Luke 22. Okay? He says, when, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this specific Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. He gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And in doing this, Jesus, he links together. He helps us to understand communion through its historical biblical context rooted in the Passover. And what he's doing is he's fixing our eyes on his defining salvific work on the cross, okay? And as the ceremony of the new covenant, it it anchors us, Jesus, he anchors us around that defining moment of his work on the cross. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, this is really important. The apostle Paul He points us all back to that night of Jesus with his disciples. And he teaches us this wasn't just one defining moment or one defining 
meal with Jesus, it was actually a pattern that all of his followers are supposed to walk in for all time until his return. He says this in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He lays down a pattern for us. He says that night that Jesus instituted communion, the Lord's Supper, The new ceremony of the new covenant, that was to be a pattern that we are to follow until he returns. It is a pattern, a ceremony for us to follow in. And when we think about the nuts and bolts of communion, I think that is a big piece of it. But what about its purpose? What can we say about the purpose of the Lord's Supper? And the way that I would summarize the significance or the purpose of communion is this. Communion is a symbolic memorial instituted by Christ to ground us in the gospel, to root us in the gospel, to spiritually nourish us in the gospel, and to unite us as God's people in the gospel. That is a mouthful. Don't worry, we're going to unpack it together. Communion, it's a symbolic memorial instituted by Christ to ground, spiritually nourish, and unite God's people in the gospel. Now, when we say it's a symbolic memorial, here's what we're saying. Why, like, why start there? Why say that? Well, what we are recognizing by saying it is a symbolic memorial. We are recognizing that just like in the Passover, God used food, physical elements, to remind God's people about the way that he saved them out of Egypt, he, he is now also drawing us to use food or physical elements to remind us about the way that Christ saves us through the cross. Said another way, the elements in communion do not mysteriously become the physical body and blood of Jesus. Instead, Jesus uses physical elements, bread and cup, to symbolically point us to his work on the cross through communion. Now, how do we know that Jesus was using the elements symbolically? Because doesn't he say, this bread is my body? Well, for one, we know that Jesus is using the elements symbolically because, and there are a variety of reasons that we won't get to today. I'll just give you a couple. But for one, we know that Jesus is using the elements symbolically because instead of giving the disciples his body, his flesh, or his blood, which was physically and readily available to him to give as he sat directly in front of them, instead, he gave them bread and the cup. So we know Jesus is using it symbolically because he uses it symbolically. Right out of the gates. 
And also, he points them to these elements in much the same way that he would often point them to other symbolic elements. For example, when he says, I am the door, or I am the vine, he's not saying that he will physically transfigure into some sort of door or vine. Now, Jesus is certainly spiritually present in communion with believers. And in that way, and this is very important, Jesus is actually present in communion. But he is not physically in the elements. Okay? Jesus died, rose, and bodily ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, just because it is a symbolic memorial does not mean that all communion is. It is a time to just remember what God has done. Okay? In other words, communion is not just something that we do. There is also a work of God in communion. God is actively at work as we participate in communion, and there are at least three things that God is doing and accomplishing through communion. Number one, He is grounding us in the gospel. He He is at work to anchor us, to root us, to ground us in the gospel. Communion is meant to firmly base the church's existence and identity in the gospel, in the work of Christ upon the cross to save us from the wrath of God due to our sin. Communion anchors our existence as a church in the work of Christ. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, I I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he says the same thing about the cup. He is grounding our identity in Christ. He's saying... I am causing you to remember the work of Jesus so that you are actually anchored in this truth, that we exist, we are here because of his body, his blood broken and shed for us. He's grounding us in the gospel. Second, he is nourishing us in the gospel. Okay, And that nourishment, it's not a physical nourishment. It is a spiritual nourishment. He is nourishing us in the gospel. Now, how do we know that it's not really about physical nourishment? Okay? Well, we can look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 34. Paul says this, If anybody's hungry, meaning physically hungry, he should eat at home so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. He's saying, hey, if you're famished and you need physical nourishment, do that at home. You can go ahead and do that at home. There's something else going on here. In the Lord's Supper. So it's the point of communion. It's not to fill your stomach. Okay? If you turn just one chapter back in 1 Corinthians 10, this helps give us a further insight into the purpose of communion. It says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
the bread that we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? He's saying what this is, this, this symbolic ceremonial memorial, what it is, is it's a participation. That word is koinonia. That's probably a word. It, like, I feel like if there's one Greek word that pastors love to share, it's that word koinonia, okay? It means to share in, to participate in. This is where uh, communion comes from, for example. This is why people call it communion. If you've ever wondered, like, where does that word come from? Why do we even say that? It's this verse right here. Uh, koinonia, communion, participating in the blood and the body of Christ. Okay, so when he says that, he's saying, like, part of this meal that we share together, we are sharing together in the body and blood of Jesus, and that imagery, it's so clear. It's about nourishing, okay? It's, it's about feasting. It's, it's about being filled in the body and blood of Christ. Now, again, you have to ask the question, does that mean physical nourishment or a different kind of nourishment? And we would look at 1 Corinthians 11 and say, Paul's very clear. It's not about physical nourishment. It is about spiritual nourishment, feasting on the work of Christ upon the cross. John Piper, I think he says it really helpfully when he says this. And I would just maybe, I would tweak what he says just by maybe one degree, okay? And I'll show you where. But he says this, when believers eat the bread and drink the cup physically, we do another kind of eating and drinking spiritually. We eat and drink, that is, we take into our lives what happened on the cross. By faith, by trusting in all that God is for us in Jesus, we nourish ourselves. And this is where I would just, I would slightly alter that. I would say this is where God nourishes us. God nourishes us with the benefits that Jesus obtained for us when he bled and died on the cross. Now, why would I say, and I think this is important, why would I say that God nourishes us? with the benefits that Jesus obtained for us when he bled and died on the cross. Okay, think about the food that you eat. Think about when you like eat a nice, big, baked potato. Would we say, I nourished myself? No, you would say, that baked potato is what provided the, the nourishment, okay? And in the same way, when we Feast upon Christ. It is a feast for our soul. And when we feast upon Christ in communion, it is Christ himself who's providing the nourishment for our soul. Okay? We spiritually are nourished in the gospel through communion. Third, God is uniting us in the gospel through communion as his people. God, he himself is knitting us together as his people through communion. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, it says, because there is one bread. Again, remember 1 Corinthians 10, 16 zoomed us in on this feast of Christ. And now he says in verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Because there's one bread that we feast on, we who are many are one body, since all of us share in the one bread, Christ. And Paul's point is that spiritually, believers, they're being knit together through our shared 
union in Christ through our shared feasting upon Christ. Okay, If baptism is what marks us as God's people, or in other words, baptism, think about this, it's what marks you as the family of God. Communion, it's the family meal that nourishes us and knits us together as the family of God. Communion is the family meal that nourishes us and knits us together as the family of God. And as we understand the significance of communion, I think it becomes much easier then to answer our next couple of questions around communion as well. So question number two, who should participate in communion? If that's kind of the pattern and the purpose of communion, well then who should participate? If, if communion, for example, is the ceremony of the new covenant that continually unites us, that continually uh, unites us by faith as the redeemed people of God, if communion is the symbolic memorial instituted by Christ that grounds us in the gospel, if communion is the family mealtime that nourishes us and unites us in the gospel, well then, who should participate? It is only for God's people. It is only for those who are in the family of God. It is only for believers. Communion, the Lord's Supper, it is only for believers. It is only for those people, said another way, who by God's grace, through faith in Christ, are converted, are saved, are genuinely His. What makes us God's people, it isn't communion. What makes us God's people is not the Lord's Supper. What makes us God's people, it's the work of God to convert a human soul by grace through faith in Christ. Okay, To believe that communion in any way, shape, or form contributes or accomplishes the work of salvation in a human being, that is a lie from the pit of hell. That cannot be believed. That must be rejected. Okay, But instead what we see is that communion, the Lord's Supper, it is for the people of God who are the people of God by grace through faith in Christ. But I want to give you one very big and important caveat here, okay? So here's what I need you to do. Tune your ears carefully to this. I want to communicate as clearly and as sensitively as possible in this area. Here's the caveat. If you are not baptized, then you should not participate in communion, okay? If you are not baptized, you should not participate in communion. And I want to be really clear on this point because I think historically we have been unclear. Now, uh, just for a little bit of clarity here, this is the position we would hold across the board as a church. This is the position we would hold across the board as our pastors. And I would tell you this is not necessarily a new position, but rather this is something that we want to freshly make sure 
that we are clear about and to make freshly an emphasis in it. Even as we introduce communion week by week, we want to make this more clear going forward. If you have not been baptized, then you should not participate in communion. And the reason that we hold this position is this, okay? I want you to understand the heartbeat behind this. It is not to be unnecessarily exclusive. Instead, it is to be helpful so that God's people participate in the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, okay? So, if you were to ask the question, who is communion for? What is the answer? God's people. It's for the people of God, church. But then you need to ask this. How are God's people identified? If you search the scriptures and you ask the same question, how are God's people identified? And I would say this. It is through a credible profession of faith in the gospel that in God's word is always demonstrated through receiving baptism. Who's communion for? It's for God's people. How are God's people identified when you search the scriptures, when you look to God's word? It is through a credible profession of faith in the gospel that in his word in the New Testament it is always demonstrated through receiving baptism. That's how they were identified. And again, to be very, very clear, baptism does not save you. It is not what makes you a Christian. But it is what marks you as God's people. And the point is this. If communion is the family meal that God is using to knit us together as the people of God. And you are not marked as part of the family through baptism. Then your application point should be to be baptized. To be marked in the family of God. Be marked as one of God's people. You should not participate in the family meal of God's people. You should first get marked as a member of the family. In other words, communion, it's not just for people who call themselves or consider themselves Christians. Communion is for those who have been marked through baptism and a clear profession of faith as Christians by the Lord, and by their fellow Christians who they are at the table with. Okay? Question number three. And again, I said this at the very beginning. If you have questions, my guess is I'm probably stirring up more questions rather than giving you all of the answers to your questions. So if you have questions, please ask those questions. Get a cup of coffee with one of our pastors and ask those questions. Okay, question number three. The last question we're going to tackle today on communion is this. How should a believer participate in communion? In other words, what should our practice be as believers, as a church, of communion? And I will just tell you up front, okay, there are a lot of things that boil down in the arena of communion in particular. There are a lot of things that boil down to wisdom and discernment. And churches and believers for 2,000 years have done their best to accomplish the purposes of communion through the ways that they practice it, okay? At the end of the day, we are working with limited revelation 
in the precise practices of communion relative to what would be like perfectly prescriptive. If you, if you were to like sit down and write out an instruction manual, you could be more clear than what God has revealed through his word in terms of the exact specific practices that Christians must practice as it relates to communion. You, know, you think about like how often should communion be practiced? Does it matter if it's juice or wine? If so, like, does like the amount of alcohol matter or not matter? Is it uh, supposed to be practiced uh, at the front or the back or the middle or the side? There are a lot of questions, okay? And I think before we even start to answer how should believers practice communion, I just want to say this. We should have a very charitable spirit towards the way that believers and churches try to work this out. We should have a very charitable spirit towards people that have a, a different answer to the question of how are we going to practice communion. We should be understanding of the fact that people, generally speaking, are probably trying to do their best to be faithful to God's word in their practices of communion. Okay? And if you've been around our church very long, you know that the likelihood that a year from today we're going to practice communion exactly the same way that we practice communion today, it's relatively low, okay? Because, and I think this is a good thing, but God, uh, he seems to regularly be challenging us and refining us in our understanding of and in our practices of communion. And that's good. That's a grace of God, Okay? So we need to recognize there is a range of acceptability when we think about the practice of communion. But there are two things I think we can say with relative certainty about the practice of communion. Number one, communion should be practiced corporately. Corporately. Or to say it more plainly, communion should be practiced in the church as the church. Okay? It is not to be practiced by individual Christians. So in the same way that I told you last week, don't drive home convicted of the message and hop in Gray's Lake and baptize yourself. I would also say this. Don't go home, sit down to a nice meal of bread and wine and call it communion. It's not to be practiced by yourself. We practice it together as a family, as a church, as the family meal. Okay? And I hope that that is clear as we've worked through its purpose and also its place in the scriptures. Now, second though, what we can say about the practice of community is that it should be participated in reverently. Reverently. If you wanted a word that's not actually a word, you could say worthily. In a worthy manner. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11 Verse 27, it says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. We don't want to do that. We want to participate in it worthily, reverently. Okay, let a person examine himself. So he's going to explain to us how can we do that. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why, this is sobering, this is why many are sick and ill among you 
and many have fallen asleep or died. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. This passage, it's a sobering passage where Jesus, he's pumping in, or, or Paul is pumping in some very serious consequences to our practices of communion. And he, what he's saying, he's not saying that we're going to lose our salvation if we participate in communion uh, in a irreverent or unworthy manner. What he's saying is we're going to be disciplined very seriously by the Lord if we are participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy or irreverent way. So the question we need to ask in 1 Corinthians 11 then is, how do we properly or reverently take communion so as not to be under the discipline of the Lord? And to answer that question, I think we need to look back to the context that Paul is speaking into in 1 Corinthians 11, but we also need to remember the purpose of communion and who it is for, okay? So first of all, just to say this, so a lot of people, they look at 1 Corinthians 11, they say, you're supposed to like examine yourself, not take it in an unworthy way. Okay, does that mean if I sinned this week, I cannot take communion? Yes. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. No, if that was the case, none of us would be taking communion, okay? Because at the very least, in our hearts, I can promise you, There's not one among us who was perfectly sinless, even just for one whole week. Now, you have to remember, why can we say that? Remember the purpose of communion in the first place. This is God. He is grounding us, rooting us, our very existence as the people of God and as his church in the gospel. He's grounding us in the gospel, nourishing us in the gospel, uniting us together in the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ. Now, what does the work of Jesus Christ remind us of? It reminds us of the fact, the reality, that we are so incapable of fixing ourselves that Jesus, the Son of God, actually had to die on the cross and there was no other way that our salvation could possibly be accomplished. It is like the great statement of our depravity. So like communion, the very heart of it and purpose of it, it is to anchor us in this truth. You need Jesus. You can't fix yourself. You're not perfect. There's one who is sinless. Jesus, who we remember in the bread and the cup. Okay? So... Can we take communion if we sin this week? Certainly. But we should not come to communion as people who are hiding and cherishing our sin. That is unworthy. We need to come to communion as people who are confessing and repenting our sin against the Lord and cherishing Jesus. That's what we do in communion. We cherish our Lord Jesus. So we need to come to God in communion as people who are confessing and repenting of our sin against the Lord and cherishing Jesus. And if you look at the specific context of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, he was speaking into this church where they cherished the meal and their drunkenness over the Lord Jesus and fellowship with Jesus and with one another. So they cherished the meal and their drunkenness. And because of that, they were walking in like very selfish sin that was causing all this divisiveness and division in the church. 
And so rather than being a family meal, knitting them together in love is tearing them apart. And so we should not come to communion as people who are hiding and cherishing our bitternesses against one another. But instead, we need to come to communion as people who are confessing and repenting of our sin against one another and cherishing Jesus. That is the way that we take communion in a worthy manner. We do not come as people who are hiding, holding, and cherishing our sin and bitterness against one another. We come as those who are confessing and repenting our sin against one another, cherishing Jesus as he knits us together as one body through the work of Christ upon the cross. Now, this is one of those rare times uh, where we have the opportunity to immediately put into practice all that we have just heard through the Word of God. And so we're going to take a few minutes here as a church body practicing together, coming together at the table of the Lord, at the Lord's table. And I feel like I just gave a 45-minute intro to communion, so I'm not going to go ahead and like reintroduce it for y'all. But I would just say this. I want you to remember, as we come together, as we're now going to put into practice this wonderful grace of God in communion, I want you to remember, number one, if you are not yet baptized then your application is to pursue baptism. Receive baptism, okay? If you are not yet baptized, we would just tell you in love, it's not the right time to be participating in the family meal. It's the right time to pursue baptism, to be marked into the family, okay? The elements for communion, uh, they are under the seats in front of you, so you can grab those now. The bread is on top of the cup. And again, we just walked through all that communion is, what it is about, what its purpose is. I'm not going to rehash all or really any of that for you. But my hope is that as we participate in communion, not just this morning, but really week after week after week until the Lord returns, my hope is that God would really be accomplishing in our hearts through faith all that he desires to do through this wonderful family meal time together as a church. So y'all can take a few minutes. I'm going to start, I'll pray just to begin our time together at the Lord's table. And then y'all can take a few minutes together at your seats. And I would encourage you to take it together at your seats. Um, And remember the work of the Lord. Remember what God is calling us into. Remember what God is doing through this time. And really be asking that he would be doing that, okay, in our hearts. Nourishing us, grounding us, anchoring us, and knitting us together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the work of Jesus. Thank you, God, for the cross. We are dead and hopeless without it, Lord, without you. God, help us to sense your presence, God, in a special way, God, as we commune with with you at your table that you purchased by your own bread or by your own body and blood, God, represented in the bread and the cup, Lord. God, thank you for this time. Thank you that you purchased this time, God, for us through your body and blood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.